Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. There has been a change in the moral, spiritual climate of our nation in the past five or six years that has been coming slowly for a long time, but it has picked up speed just in very recent years. We are going at a head-spinning rate at this point, where just a few years ago, statistics were showing us that still 85% of the population in the United States still considered themselves Christians. We have statistics coming out now that are alarming in, in uh, their change, in the downward spiral. I don't know how much those statistics might be skewed by the people who are pulling the levers and pushing the buttons and manipulating things to make us think that they're worse than they are. But we do know that things morally and spiritually are getting much worse and at a much more rapid pace than we have ever seen in the history of the United States of America. And because we see this happening, I feel justified in going to the first chapter of Romans, reading again one of the major passages that the church refers to when trying to help establish our position on one of the hottest topics that is in the public eye today, and that is the issue of the gay marriage and homosexuality. And that will be a part of what I'm speaking to you about today, but not all that I will be speaking to you about. Obviously, if I lay out what the world is trying to accomplish, what the opposition to the church is trying to accomplish, is to normalize things that we traditionally have stood against to try to get the overwhelming majority to accept as normal, as natural, what we believe the Bible does not allow us to change and to modify into being normal or natural. But in this sermon, and you probably have your notes, you'll see there will be four stages that I'm going to identify today that we go from one stage to the next each stage becoming progressively worse, which is very similar to the other sermons that I have preached as we go from stage to stage and we go downward each time. But from this first chapter of Romans, the first thing I want to identify in the 21st verse through the 23rd verse is... Paul has identified spiritual confusion that is setting upon the people. That's where he begins to identify this downward trend. When people get spiritually confused, nothing good comes out of that. For although they knew God, 
they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. Now in that little reading right there, we can understand when he says they did not glorify him as God, that means that they still might acknowledge there is a God, but they're not acknowledging fully who God claims to be. God is a, something as impersonal as a force. Or he's a God of their own contriving that is not both a God of judgment and of mercy, but he's only a God of love. Or they might see him not as a God of love, but as a tyrant. But anything they're doing, they're not seeing God as God, as who he is. So they did not glorify him as God. They just, he's the big buddy in the sky or, or something but he's not being glorified as who he is. And they didn't give thanks to him. They ceased to be thankful to him because obviously without having this relationship with God, they didn't see that they owed him any thanks for anything. The self-made people who believe that all that they have is because that's what they've made out of their life. They are responsible. They are the architects of their own destiny. They make their own way, their own prosperity, their own life. So who are we to give thanks to God? As a matter of fact, in the age that we're living and in this tide that is turning against Christianity, it is becoming offensive to more and more people, even as athletes want to stop and say, I want to give thanks to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or I want to give thanks to God. Or Tim Tebow wants to bow on a knee and give thanks. And he's drawing harsh criticisms because not only do they not give thanks to God, they don't appreciate you giving thanks to God and they think you're foolish for doing so. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles, which in a word is idolatry. It's all that adds up to spiritual confusion where you begin to draw away from God, deny who God is, but have this uh, in, innate desire to worship something, then you start creating your own gods. You start making gods... Uh, uh, and idols out of things that are the creation instead of the actual creator. I wonder if there's any doubt in the Christian community that our nation is in spiritual chaos. I don't think we would have much argument there. And just like described by Paul, this chaos comes because of this movement, this sliding away from the God that they once knew. And so these four quick points here of what's happening is the rejection of Christianity bears the testimony to the spiritual chaos. They are spiritually confused. Then we have the mixed message of highly compromised Christianity that demonstrates spiritual chaos. You don't have to think very long to find an example in your own heart and your own mind of somebody in a prominent place that is calling themselves a Christian, but you're looking at the fruits of their life, and you're very confused. I mean, it's, it's shocking to you, upsetting and confusing to your spirit, 
to say, how does this person call themselves a Christian yet do what they are doing? It doesn't make any sense. And it almost short circuits our understanding of a Christian. But that's the mixed message that is being sent by people in prominent places. I am a Christian, but they do something that is totally anti-biblical, anti-God, amoral, immoral. Number three, the declining church in the United States speaks of spiritual chaos. Virtually every denomination is in decline. I've mentioned to you before that some of the recent statistics have shown that the only two major churches that are not in decline are the Assemblies of God and the Mormon Church. We are victims of the day and the age and the society that is leaving the church. They're not finding what they need in the church. How much responsibility are we willing to take for that? Westside has gone through a significant transformation trying to figure out how we speak to and minister to a new generation. That we have no interest whatsoever in compromising God's Word. But on the other hand, we're trying to figure out what questions are they asking? What are they really interested in knowing? Are we giving them answers to their questions? And in the past few years, too often they've had questions we have not answered adequately. And let's just go back to the issue, because we're going to be on this today, the issue of the homosexuality, the gay marriage. And when they come to the church and they say, give us answers why this is wrong, too often we individually have not been prepared to be able to give satisfying answers, a defense of our faith. What we have been able to do is just say how strongly we believe what we believe. That's not adequate. When you have to be able to tell somebody persuasively why this is wrong, rather than just in generic terms say, because the Bible says so, don't expect anybody then to say, oh, I understand, well, I agree with you. It's not persuasive enough. We have to be more skilled in being able to deliver the message than just resorting to that. It did fine for us for generations because all we were doing was preaching to each other. And we never challenged each other. But now we're preaching to people who want real solid answers. And we have not prepared ourselves well. There's a mass exit from the church. It hasn't helped that within the church there have been numerous scandals that have gone on. It hasn't helped that people who have a prominent presence have shamelessly accumulated wealth to themselves in the name of Christianity, driving their limousines and living in their multiple mansions and and, uh, misappropriating funds and robbing from the poor to support their elaborate lifestyle. All the while, we we think in the back of our mind, remember, I thought the church was about as much as you do it to the least of these in clothing the naked and feeding the the hungry 
and ministering to the sick and visiting those that are in prison. And when people are surrounding themselves with opulence and great wealth and we're not executing the true calling in the heart of the church, of course people are going to become bitter about that and they're going to go somewhere else because it's just a bunch of money-grubbing hypocrites. The moral scandals that have come to the people in the pulpit and the people in prominent places that the names I know come to your mind through the years as they were preaching the Word, but they weren't living the Word. No wonder people are going out the door and not coming back because they don't trust the church. So there's been a lot of problems. But the declining church in the United States speaks of this spiritual chaos because we preach one thing, but we're not living by it all the time. And then an entire generation that is being raised without godly spiritual guidance from their parents. Totally unchurched, unschooled in the Bible. That I have a privilege of having been raised in a home where my mother and my father were already Christians before I was brought into this world. My mom and dad had the habit at night, at bedtime, kneeling down beside their bed and ending their day in prayer, thanking God for his blessings, asking protection over their family, asking for wisdom and guidance in life's decisions. And as a young boy, I remember many times passing their bedroom to go to mine and just glancing to the side. And there's mom and dad by their bed and praying. And sometimes going in and kneeling down beside them and joining them and praying with them. But see, that's my heritage. They loved the Lord. They were committed to God. They were committed to church. I went to church enough as a child to last most people a lifetime. And we not only went to church, we gave to our church and sacrificially. And our family never went hungry because we gave too much money to God. My dad was just a blue collar worker, but he gave literally thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to the church. Sometimes draining his bank account, believing that he was being obedient to God and God would take care of him. We never lacked. I was privileged. And I don't know how many people here can identify with that. I don't know how many grew up with Christian parents. I don't know how many overcame the odds of not being raised by Christian parents, but you found Christ. And I don't know how many of you here today still are un, in the house, and you don't have Christian parents. You don't have anybody guiding you. You don't have anybody praying with you. You don't have anybody advising you, instructing you in biblical things. You don't know what it feels like to get that from the home. And so you're here, I hope, getting it from the church, but you only get little sound bites from me. I wish you could come live at my house. I'll demonstrate what it means to you to live in a Christian home where Ann and I are not throwing things at each other. Where we're not cursing each other when nobody's around listening to us. 
who are not unfaithful to each other, but we're demonstrating love one to another. You come into our house, it's full of the, of the presence of God and the love of God. And we treat one another with respect. I wish I could bring you in and raise you in that. What about those that don't have that? And a whole generation that basically is unchurched and therefore nobody in their family has ever told them how important God is. They haven't told them who God is. They haven't told them that the church is the body of Christ. And because we love God, we go to church because that's one of the best ways to learn more about God and to develop our spiritual life and to show honor and respect for who He is and what He has done for us. They haven't been taught those very fundamental, basic things. And we see chaos. Now we're seeing evidence of this moral revolution in the United States of America, or might I more appropriately call it an immoral revolution? Judeo-Christian values are being trashed by libertines, constantly mocked by Hollywood. I challenge you to turn on the TV any night and see if you can go the entire night without somebody mocking and trashing your Christian values. We keep letting them in the house every night. Why do we do that? We're attacked by the atheists, the anti-theists, the humanists. And Christianity has been scrubbed from the public square by government agencies. And this past week, some of you may be aware of this if you keep up on what's happening in your world. I do have this on the PowerPoint, so if we'll go to that slide while I read this, there was an Army Reserve based in Pennsylvania that received training from an instructor. And the news just broke this past week that that instructor put up a, a PowerPoint presentation like we have and listed for these people the top groups of religious extremism that they need to be aware of. Now look at this. I didn't list the top ten. I listed the top six and skipped to number ten. The top ten religious extremists that are considered dangerous. Number one, evangelical Christianity. Behind them is, the, we're more dangerous than the Muslim Brotherhood. Ultra-Orthodox Israel. That means people who really, truly are conservative in, in their servitude to Jehovah. They're dangerous people, according to this, this instructor. Uh, another group called Christian Identity, Al-Qaeda. We beat out Al-Qaeda all to pieces. Hamas. And down to number 10, Roman Catholicism. Dangerous groups. Are you not at least confused and perplexed, if not totally offended that this mentality is out there that looks at evangelical Christianity and says you are a dangerous group to society in the United States of America. Something is going wrong in our nation. There is spiritual confusion. And the result of this, according to what Paul has written, is it turns to nonsensical thinking. They became vain in their imaginations. They develop a darkened heart. Number three, there is utter foolishness. 
emanating from those that in that community are heralded and thought to be wise. Now that's a difficult one. Because how do you reach somebody that is held up and heralded as being the wise sages of their group and convince them somehow that as wise as everybody has voted you to be, you are a complete idiot. It just is not going to sell with them. They are utterly, totally, irretrievably fools. Yet they think they're smart because they have become so twisted in the way they think and what they believe that the most foolish and ridiculous things can be spoken or done and their crowd is amazed by their wisdom. I see this daily in, in what I read, in the people I deal with, that, that the foolishness that is put forth, that the world celebrates that as being great wisdom. Moving to number two. After there is great spiritual chaos, spiritual confusion, the next thing that happens as a result of that is sexual dysfunction. And this is a passage of Scripture that is hotly debated, yet it is, a, uh, it, it is an anchor point for Christianity. It is so abundantly clear, yet even as clear as it is, it's one that has come under attack and reinterpreted for the convenience of the opposition. Let me read. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Now that's where you see where it all went wrong. In this spiritual chaos and confusion, then they made an exchange one of the worst deals that ever been made. Exchanging truth, which is of great value, for a lie, which nothing good can come of that. You talk about bad deals. That's worse than passing up a date with a beautiful Parisian model for a date with Granny Clampett. This is bad. This is record setting. And they served and worshipped created things instead of the Creator, who Paul just can't go any farther when he comes to this little oasis in the middle of this. And he mentions the Creator, and suddenly his heart just bursts forth, and he has to have this moment who says, Who is blessed forever? Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their woman exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Notice that, and let's just pin that to the board, okay? Because in just a moment, we're going to take that off the board and look at it. But right now, it says even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust one for another. How much plainer and clearer 
can it get? Well, you just wait and see if people can't mess that up. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The only way Paul could be any clearer would be to include details that I don't care to hear. But it's very clear what's going on here. So what is the sin? The traditional interpretation of this passage is that homosexuality is identified as the unnatural expression of human sexuality. However, one of the most popular self-serving interpretations of this passage held by the homosexual community is simply that any time a person goes against what is natural, that is morally wrong. So far, there's no alarm bells. But it's the next statement that really gets off course. By extension, their thought pattern is if a heterosexual tries to behave as a homosexual, that's against nature. I agree with that. Conversely, they say if a homosexual engages in heterosexual behavior, that is against nature, and that's where the whole thing goes silly. Because what they're doing is they are trying to say what is against nature that you were basically, here's the little cliche, you were born that way, therefore that is natural. So anybody who believes that they are born homosexual to be anything other than that, you would be castigated in this passage as being a sinner because you are going against what is natural. Then one has to wonder about the people who claim to be bisexual that they evidently don't have anything they can do that's wrong because they're free to go either way at any time. What is true about this passage is that what is against nature is offensive to God because he designed nature. The problem with the homosexual community's interpretation of this passage is that erroneous concept of what is natural. And the well-worn argument is that if you are born with different sexual orientations, therefore your sexual orientation is an organic thing. It's a natural thing. And that's the reason people who believe that don't understand why people have a moral objection to the way you were born and who you are. They say you can't help who you are, just go with it. And it was further bolstered by the research of a man called Simon LeVay. His work was highly criticized, number one, for his own bias, because as an openly gay researcher, it appeared as though he had an agenda in doing his research to defend his controversial lifestyle. Number two, the samplings he used in his research were, by his peers, considered to be too small to be conclusive or good research. Number three, he failed to compile adequate sexual histories of his subject. In other words, his peers found his research highly flawed. But he is the one that back in 1991 started this thing about the gay gene that has become so popular that even though it has never 
uh, been approved by the peers, the research, even though his research has never been duplicated to be verified, it's still something that they're holding on to. As a matter of fact, a more reliable port, report on genetics comes from Dr. Francis Collins. He's the head of the Human Genome Project. He and 150 other of the, of the top genetic scientists in the world decoded the human genome finishing three years ahead of schedule. At the cl conclusion of their study, Dr. Collins said repeatedly, after having studied this, there is no gay gene. And at most, Dr. Collins suggests genetics might have, can have, an influence on predispositions. But at no time, in no way, do they serve as predeterminers. In other words, you can have something in your genetics that predisposes you to want to act a certain way, but there's nothing there in your genes that forces you to make decisions. And the whole basis of what we believe in is that man is a free will agent that is able and capable of making choices in his life. And as God set the tree in the middle of the garden, if we could put an extension on that, it's not as though some people were inevitably bound to genetically eat from the tree. And they could not make the argument before God, you'd understand, God, you created me to eat of that tree. You put it in my DNA that it, I was designed from the very time that the proteins began to come together that all I was ever made for was to eat of the tree. But God's take on this is, I gave you a choice. And it doesn't matter how much you wanted to eat of the tree, how deep your desires were, how good it looked to you, I told you, don't eat of the tree, and failing to obey me brought consequences. That's what it's all about. It doesn't matter what people feel like doing. It doesn't matter what their desires are. We cannot blame genetics for saying I'm just doing what comes natural because God has set a higher order for the only moral beings that you rise above your desires and you are amenable to God and accountable to Him and you crucify the desires and the flesh for one reason and one reason only. Because God says, I want you to put me and my morals first above your own desires and your own pleasures and do what I want you to do. That's the way you please me. So living for God is a life of discipline. Paul said, I beat my body into subjection. I do this daily. But we're living in a society that doesn't think they have to crucify their affections. They don't have to crucify. They have no discipline whatsoever. Don't need any discipline. Because what you do is you dance to your DNA. Like Richard Dawkins said. Whatever your genetics are driving you to do, do it with all your might. Because that is being real. But they're falling far short of the glory of God or what God expects of them. So are we defined by our desires? And unfortunately, that's what's happening today. People are defining themselves by their desires. They find themselves desiring things that maybe society has historically said that's wrong. But instead of fighting those desires, they say, my desires define me. Therefore, if I find an attraction to the same sex, that must be who I am. You know who you are? 
you are wonderfully and fearfully made. You are made in the image of God. You are God's creation. That's who you are. What you do puts labels on you. Now, my psychology teacher used to love to say labels are for soup cans. I don't know how important labels are, but that has become something that we have always done is we've labeled people. If they drink too much, they're an alcoholic. It's a label. But are, is that what they really are, or is it just a label describing what they do? I know what they are. They're a soul in need of direction from God. That's what they are. But we've got these labels. If you are bound by drugs, you're a drug addict. That's a label. Is that really who you are? But what you do is what God counts. And even Jesus said so. He says, now, the man that hears my words and does them, executes them, obeys me, that's a wise man. And he went on to say he's like a man that builds his house on the rock. That storms can come and nothing can move it because he was wise. Who's the wise man? The one that does. Now let's take somebody that does the wrong thing. And this is the one that he says, if you hear my words but you don't do them, that's like the foolish man that built on the sand and the storm comes and the building doesn't endure because there is no foundation. So for God... It's not what you are feeling or what you are desiring. It's what you do. And there's people that even struggle with, am I homosexual because I have these desires? No, you're not. I mean, it might be embarrassing to admit what your desires are, but it's what you do that God's going to judge. I don't care if you have to fight that battle every day for the rest of your life, if you understand that that's your battle that God expects you to fight, that you're going to do it with all of your might and all of your strength, and you're going to try to serve God and live for Him, I don't care what your battle is. That doesn't bother me. What bothers me is when people think that God doesn't care what their battle is and they can do whatever they want. That bothers me. I mean, if we were all to compare our thoughts today we would probably want to wear a sack over our head for the rest of our life for letting other people know what we think sometimes. You know, we've all had thoughts, somebody has said at one time, that have shamed hell. It's in us. I know you've you've awakened from those horrible, hideous dreams that that's not you, but somewhere inside the mind of man and the heart of man is just enough of the seed of the sin of the world that these things just keep coming to us and keep coming out even when in our subconscious. And we do it, and we think these things, and we're wondering, and we, we even wrestle with that uh, theologically whenever we think, you know, I keep having these terrible thoughts. Have I sinned yet? Well, you have to understand, it depends on how long you thought about that and how much joy you got out of it. Because the Bible says, lust, when it is conceived, there's a process there, brings forth sin. But lust, without being conceived, in other words, without you giving it the time to take root in your heart, it comes but it goes, and you haven't allowed it to conceive it, it hasn't born the child called sin yet.
So are we defined by our desires or our actions? But what people today call natural desires, the Bible has an, another word for it that doesn't fit in the modern terminology lexicon. It's called temptations. <laughs> there are benign natural desires, such as desires for tasty food, or beholding beautiful things, or seeking, seeking comfort and peace. I have those kind of desires. Then there's unnatural desires. One cannot call every desire a natural desire and conclude, I was born to desire these things, therefore it must be a natural thing for me to do it because there is no stopping that logic. There might be the man uh, that is just desiring uh, chemicals in his body to take these wild trips. But that's not natural. We can't use that as an excuse to say, I've just got to do what I, I'm feeling like doing, because if I don't, something's probably going to burst somewhere. Without, if there's a moral law, then there's a moral lawgiver. And the purpose, purpose of the moral law is to define for us what is right and wrong before God, without any regard to how strongly we feel urges and desires to do the wrong behavior. So God's standards for our behavior trump our personal yearnings, our personal yens, our personal desires, and our personal cravings. And then the Bible says God gave them over. If you read this passage, this is, this is a, a repeating refrain. God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. It's a terrible thing to get to the point where God finally ceases to strive with you and he takes his hands off and he says, you are unbridled, you are unfettered, you are unchained, and you are free to go do whatever your nasty person wants to go do. And it's a scary moment whenever the Holy Spirit releases us to do anything we want to do and be anything we want to be. But God continued to give them over, stated twice within two verses. The first time in those two verses, he says, gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. The second time it says, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Now that's scary. I've been in that position, a similar position, where my father has finally given over to me because I hounded him and pestered him so much. And he kept saying no, and I figured it was my job to break down the objection. It was a battle of wills. And I'd argue and argue and argue until finally my father would come to the point of saying, okay, do it. Scared me silly. Now I'm in a predicament. I got what I wanted. And I had this sneaking suspicion all the time. He knew something about this that I did not yet understand that I was going to get myself in a spiritual mess or a, a physical mess or a financial mess, but I wanted it. Do it, son. You'll never learn. And that's what God is coming to the point. When he said, okay, if this is what you want, do it. And you'll pay the price. When God gave them over, he pulled all the restraints and allowed them to fulfill their carnal desires in whatever way they wanted to, to whatever extent they wanted to, unfettered, unchained, unrestricted, unbounded. What they did was the manifestation of the unrestrained human lust. Number three, social deterioration. And it says, starting in the 28th verse, 
Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. There's that, again, God gave them over, this time to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, and they are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil things. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. And you've got this social deterioration going on where it says they just didn't want to even retain God in their knowledge. Get rid of every reference to him. Get him out of our eye, out of our mind. Let's don't think about God. Let's lock him away somewhere in a closet and we can live without the all-seeing eye of God upon us. Then we can do whatever we want. Today, in our nation, references to God are being driven from the public eye. Let me give you just a few examples. I, I don't want to depress us so bad we can't make our way out of the building today. But I do want to share a few examples. NBC Network showed a clip of students reciting the Pledge of the Allegiance just in the past few months. They cleverly edited that every time they showed it to get around the phrase under God. They did not want that to be shown. It raised such a, a, a fuss from the people that NBC was finally forced to apologize. We accidentally omitted it. Oh, yeah, you accidentally took the only two words referring to God and took them completely out of it and didn't know you did that. Here's one, and I, I want you to hold on to your hats because you think I'm getting partisan here, but I'm not. But I'm going to call it like I see it. I apologize to anybody who is of the democratic persuasion. It's not my intention to demean you, but I will tell you that in the 2012 Democratic National Convention, they had already put the platform together, eliminating all references to God, and done it intentionally. They did not want God to be in the platform until a vote was forced from the floor to put God back in, and in three votes, every time they voted, the opposition was loudly, apparently, obviously, in favor of keeping God out of the platform, and those, the fours, were very weak. It took two-thirds majority to pass that. It never did pass vocally. Yet the, the, the uh, chairman was determined somehow to put that back in. So on the third vote, without having a clear two-thirds majority, even having a majority, he declared it passed. And that is absolutely, utterly shameful. That our nation is moving to scrub God from their business. In the Washington, D.C. visitor's entrance tunnel to the White House, it was refurbished and the words, in God we trust, were omitted. It was another accident. And they had to go back and put them back up. How do you miss those things? At the Westmoreland Middle School in Tennessee, the school board actually told the faculty members they were not allowed to bow their heads in silent prayer at public events like football games or see you at the poll. 
And their concern was that students might see the teacher bowing their heads and confuse the teacher's personal speech with their official speech. Is that not the most ridiculous thing you ever heard where a school board tells a teacher, you cannot publicly show that you are bowing your head and saying a prayer. Students might see you. And after all, you have to remember the other slide, the evangelical Christians are dangerous people. Feeling good about your country yet? When you forget God, the moral climate of a society absolutely plummets. So let me just recap a few of the earmarks of this society that booted God from their thoughts. The Bible says they are gossips, they are slanderers, they are God-haters, they are insolent, arrogant, and boastful, inventing new ways of doing evil things, disobedient to parents. That means they have no respect for authority. No understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Talk about a commentary on the 21st century America. We have become a nation of all of these things, and especially at the end, a nation of no mercy. The hottest news topic in the past month that you will not see in the mainstream media but it has been run daily with dozens of articles in the Philadelphia Inquirer is because the abortion doctor called Kermit Gosnell is on trial. If you have not heard about it, the atrocities committed by this man for the past many years are so heinous in this abortion mill that so beyond the horrors of even abortion itself that it even merited being brought to trial. In this nation, this sin-jaded society looked at that and they were so repulsed by what they saw, even though they might have been supporters of abortion, they said, let's bring this man to trial. That's how heinous and disgusting what this man did. The Enquirer carried story after story and the actions of this monster so stomach-churning that the accounts are so detestable, so vile, and so unthinkably repugnant that the investigators would be haunted by the sights and the scenes of what they had discovered. The doctor's story is one of the heartless, of heartless slaughter of babies, even when they were born alive. I will not go into detail on this. But I do want to let you know that the attending nurses were so repulsed to witness what the doctor was doing as I might mention just superficially, severing the spinal cords of screaming babies after they were born, dismembering the babies and tossing the body parts into the trash, and that only touches the surface of what they saw. Live children born, yet he did not want them to continue to survive, and he would murder them. And the news media goes crazy to go to Newtown, Connecticut and cover hours and hours and hours in their news coverage of what happened of a crazed young man who goes in and shoots these young children there, which was a terrible, heinous crime. So upsetting. And say nothing about the abortion doctor that takes children that are only separated by a few years from the other children who were murdered. And murders piles of them as the children scream. Have you heard about it? Because the news media doesn't want you to know that. Because it's tramping on their territory. Because we are a nation without mercy. Or selective mercy. Let's feel sorry for all kids that are 
five years old and older. But let's don't feel sorry for babies. They don't mind devoting significant airtime to an out-of-control basketball coach that throws basketballs at his players and calls them names. But let's don't cover the abortion doctor. The final point is a moral inversion. And that's the title of my sermon today, The Inversion. This has been identified by a number of, of uh, scholars of the New Testament. And they agree that we've come to a point where there's been a flip-flop. The people push so hard they manage to turn the ship over, upside down. It's called the inversion. We are living in the inversion process. I don't know if the ship is completely uh, topsy-turvy or not, but we are living in the inversion process, which is what brought me back to the first chapter of Romans for today. Because we're going through what we only prophesied for years. One of these days, it's all going to turn upside down. Now we're seeing it happen all around you. It's being inverted. Isaiah spoke of this in the fifth chapter and the 20th verse. And he said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And What's happening, folks, quite honestly, is the cultural elites who lead the charge in reshaping our culture through the promotion of their inverted values, are busy and hard at work trying to turn this ship upside down. When I say the cultural elites, the people with the power and the persuasion and the microphone, I mean that's the judges, the lawmakers, the university professors, the news media, the entertainment industry, and that includes the writers, the producers, and the directors, and the actors, and the actresses, and the music industry superstars who have been given this large voice in our culture that they get up because they are superstars. Everybody recognizes their name, and they've seen them in their favorite movie, and they get up and they make these political statements about what they think about our nation and what we ought to be doing like they're some sort of expert simply because their face is on a film somewhere. And these are the cultural elites that are working to turn our nation upside down. They've thrown out our time-tested values and our standards as being too musty and too outdated to ever serve this new world order. They completely dismiss the Bible as being irrelevant or mythical, or they use the Bible and rest the Scripture to their own destructions with theological revision that makes it say what they want it to say for convenience instead of what it does say. There appears to be an all-out war on God, the Bible, and Christianity today. We wonder what's going on with our military. With this clear and aggressive hatred toward Christianity, it keeps popping up, not only in this trainer that the military says he, was, he was, does not represent what we believe, but nevertheless, it keeps, keeps popping up. Somebody keeps doing this, and they don't seem to be able to stop it. Reminded just recently of the effort of the military that they had made the mandate remove all the Bibles from Walter Reed Hospital. They didn't want Bibles to be there anymore. This is a military institution. No place for Bibles here. Until such a loud outcry on what they were trying to sneak and what they were trying to do that they were forced to reverse that decision. And all they could say was, oops. 
And there's a story also that broke out this week about the florist in Washington State who is being sued by the state of Washington because she refused to do a gay wedding due to her religious convictions. And that's going to happen more and more and more as people of faith cannot operate their business according to their convictions. And they will be put out of business and the Christians will be driven out of business and all will be left is people have no morals. That's why we're spinning into this inversion. That's why this nation is going upside down at a head-spinning rate. Stories of persecution against Christians in the United States are coming almost daily. The attack on Christian principles and values are streaming like a flood. There are many in this church this morning, you've lived on the other side of this insanity. You remember what it meant to, to live in a nation where Christianity was honored and respected. An, er, an era whenever as a nation we actually well, created the national day of prayer. And had no problem with it. Now it doesn't seem to be appropriate to have a national day of prayer. Something's going terribly wrong. In 1957, our parents and our grandparents were comfortable adding two words to the Pledge of Allegiance, under God. But it's a problem with people today. We shouldn't have to say under God. You can't force me to say under God. There is a spiritual chaos going on. There is an inversion that's happening. Moral, morality is despised. Immorality is being applauded. People are calling the good bad and the bad good and the light darkness and the darkness light. Young women like Sandra Fluke who want to go and testify before the nation. I would think, there would, some, I would think somebody would have enough decency and respect for themselves. They wouldn't want to stand before the nation on, in the public eye and stand up and announce, I think the government owes me birth control so I can have all the sex I want without worrying about babies. Wouldn't there be some shame in standing before everybody and divulging your sex life? But she's heralded as a heroine. And they applaud her for being so brave. They've worked so hard to normalize what we call perverted sexual behavior. And we've got a term now called the new normal that says it all. Normal is no longer normal. Normal has been flipped on its head. It's called the new normal. Topsy-turvy. That which against nature is now called natural. And even the Christian communities begin to lose its distinction. And that's really the sad part. Because the rate of divorce within the Christian community is about the same as it is outside of the Christian community. Do we really believe and practice what we preach? The kind of crude and salty language that used to be used, that is only used by the world, or used to only be used by the world, is becoming so commonplace in the church and among Christians today. Even coming from the pulpit as young, edgy pastors getting up and, and cussing and swearing in the middle of their of the sermon because they think it connects him with people. What kind of an upside down world are we living in today? I wonder if you feel a little overwhelmed sometimes. I wonder if it seems to you that the whole thing is just going down the sewer pipes. I wonder if you ever get to feeling like Elijah 
who sits in the wilderness and just wants to give up and say, God, kill me. There's nothing left to live here for. Nobody loves you but me. God had to remind him, oh, I've reserved several thousand people have not bowed their knee to Baal. Now, here's the important point, people. Are you feeling a little overwhelmed? Are we starting to think in terms of if we Christians could just get the majority again, everything would be all right? You know, Christianity was never a majority-based movement. It's a God-based movement. And we have the example of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham standing outside and Abraham worried, sick about his family that's in Sodom and Gomorrah and him bargaining with God. And he starts at 50 and goes to 40 and goes to 30 and goes to 20 and goes to 10. God, if you can just find that many people in all of the cities, would you spare them if there was 10 righteous people? And God says, I'll spare it for 10 righteous people. And the power of that passage is that you can make a difference even if you're not a majority. And the whole narrative of this being God-based, and it doesn't have to be majority-based, gives us these beautiful and wonderful and powerful stories that this is what we are now facing today is virtually a David versus Goliath scenario. David wins. It's virtually another Gideon's 300 versus 135,000 Midianites and Amalekites. Gideon wins. It's another Elijah and one measly servant surrounded the mountains crawling with the troops of Ahab. And Elijah wins. It's the untrained, unorganized children of Israel armed with nothing but musical instruments and kitchen appliances marching around the walled city of Jericho, but they win. It's the good news that God never requires a majority to do His work. He can start here at Westside. We can make a difference because without God, all things are possible. We can't think in terms of, well, we're not big enough to. My God's big enough. Now, how do we make a difference? Let me borrow a concept from Dr. Kevin Scott. I want to give credit where credit is due. We are the sons and the daughters of God. Notice your relationship. Now we are the sons of God. Now, the writers of the, uh, the translators and the writers of scriptures always use the word man as a given to refer to all humanity. For, for those of you here today that get confused when we don't say man and woman, we just have to understand the implications of the scripture. But we are all the sons of God, and you're daughters of God too. What we are not is slaves. Now, I'm not talking about the bond-slave mentality where we've been set free and therefore we commit ourselves to God for the rest of our lives. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the oppressed slave. We're not slaves of God. And the difference, according to Dr. Kevin Scott, is remarkable and exciting to me. Anybody here have a butler? <laughs> well, how many of you men think you have a maid? And the trouble with a servant is that the servant cannot make explanation for the family, defend the values of the family, cannot go to the mat for the family. Uh, the servant can give information. 
You ask the maid, uh, what's the phone number? The maid can look up the phone number. But don't ask the maid to explain the history of the family, the genealogy, because they, they aren't able to do that. Don't ask the maid to explain the spiritual values of the family because they're just hirelings, they're slaves, or the butler. They give information. They repeat information. They can take a message on the phone. They can give a message. The master's not in. The madam is not in. They said to tell you to wait. They, they can impart information. Sons and daughters are more intimately acquainted with what's going on. They can impart valuable information, inside information about the family. Now we are the sons of God. You take a religion like Islam, it's a, it's a religion of slavery. But the religion of Christianity is a family situation. Now we are not the slaves of God. Now we are the sons of God. And as such, it is not adequate for you to go forth armed like a slave of God and take the Bible and impart black and white information. Well, the Bible says, you as a child of God are to be able to go and, and be able to convey the very heart of God. This is my father. This is how he feels. This is why he does this. You are to be able to defend your faith as a son of God, as a child of God, a daughter of God. Yet we all are acting like slaves sometimes when the best we can do is quote a verse that we memorized a long time ago and hope that somehow the Holy Spirit takes it and does His work. But your obligation for God goes far beyond that because you've been brought into the family. And because you're a son of God, a child of God, a daughter of God, you have a responsibility to be able to take the word passionately and deliver it to the people with an understanding of how it applies to them. So if it feels like you're losing the battle, remember God works best when the odds are against His people. And I would say that we as sons of God and children of God daughters of God need to be more passionate about our duties here and I would say that it would be a good start for us today to determine that we're going to somehow change this nation with what life we have left well how are we going to do that you know the best way to change the nation you grow your own the statistics show that after people get a certain age that, that it's, it, the odds are against changing the way they think. We're still going to sow the seed. But the very best way is you grow your own. What does that mean? Get a hold of the children and get the children trained up in the way that they should go. Because we have farmed our children out to the world to train them and the world did a great job. They trained them away from us. I say take them back. Take the kids back. Get them back. Raise them in the knowledge of the Lord and reclaim this nation with a new generation that comes up bowing the knee before God and calling Him Savior and Lord. That's the way we're going to take it back. And if you commit yourself to that, you are committing yourself to some hard work because that's not easy. Or you can just continue to let the world do it. Did you read or hear this last week? about the lady that stood up on MSNBC and made the shocking statement that we've got to get past this private mentality that the children belongs to the family. Did you hear that? And we've got to realize the children don't belong to the family. 
they belong to the community. Hillary started this, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village idiot to believe that. Your children don't belong to the community. They're your responsibility. And these children that we've got, if we have come to the mentality it belongs to the community, just let the community raise them, it's not going to get anything worse and worse because the community is doing a rotten job of raising our kids. There is nobody on the face of the earth that can do a better job than the Christian home, Christian people, Christian values, Christian church of raising our children. Nobody. Nobody. But I wonder if that's where our heart is. Let God speak to us today. Bow your heads.